1: Hello and welcome to episode 157 of the Washed Up Emo podcast. I am Tom Mullen from WashedUpEmo.com. And today we welcome Jamie Stillman from Earthquaker Devices, an effects pedal company out of Akron, Ohio. Jamie was also in bands you may have heard, like The Party of Helicopters, Fringe Candidate, Relaxer, his current band, and my favorite, Harriet the Spy. Harriet the Spy were a band out of Kent, Ohio that was around from 93 to 1998, and were an actual screamo band. They're one of the first that I'd ever heard when I started getting into all this stuff. Also, from 1993 to 2002, Jamie ran Donut Friends Records and put out a ton of punk, metal, and shoegaze acts. What's even more fascinating than his band, label stories, or his time as a tour manager that you'll hear about is how Jamie started an effects pedal company. It's a testament to pursuing what you love leads to your work. Personally, as a guitar player, I'm heavily into delay pedals, and I've been messing around with their Dispatch Master pedal a ton. Now, if you want to get a Dispatch Master for yourself for free, and you live in the United States, and you're above the age 18, head on over to washedupemo.com and check out the episode page to enter. If you're hearing this after August 31st, 2019, you are out of luck but you can still go to EarthquakerDevices.com and see all the rad pedals they have that your favorite band probably already uses. Finally, thank you to all the Patreon supporters out there. Literally, you make this podcast of my life so much easier with your support. If you want to help out, head on over to Patreon.com WashedUpEmo. This is episode 157 of the Washed Up Emo podcast with Jamie Stillman from Earthquaker Devices.
2: I, as long as I can remember, I've been into music. Um, I grew up when I was real young. I lived at my grandparents' house with, you know, my parents and uh, my mom's brother, my uncle Danny. He was still living there, and he was in a band. And I just, I remember like just being fascinated with just all the instruments in the house. There's like recordings of me that exist from when I'm, you know, I don't know how old I am, three or four, like playing a uh, hard day's night on hat boxes and singing it, it along. <laughs> yeah, so, you know, my, my Uncle Danny, he, you know, taught me how to play drums, basically. When I was real young, I got my first drum set. Um, I think I was like five, I think five, maybe six. There's a photo of me in front of the Christmas tree with sitting behind it so i've just been i've been a drummer my entire life as long as i can remember so i've been playing music for a long time and that's pretty much the start of it i didn't start playing guitar until i was about 12 and you know again my uncle danny and another uncle of mine uh, my uncle doug they kind of both taught me a little bit here and there and i just ran with it Um, but for the most part self-taught and when i was young i was pretty just into like hair metal That was my thing. Yeah. Loved Poison, Van Halen, Motley Crue, you know, stuff like that. Uh, (laughs) And I would say the turning point for me with all of that, I would probably like eighth grade discovered Red Hot Chili Peppers. And that was, you know, that was my turning point. Which record? Uh, Mother's Milk? Yeah, Mother's Milk. Yeah. And I kind of went backwards from there. I was also, you know, like most people from our scene, I skated. So, you know, I'd watch all those skate videos and hear all the bands and be like, "Who is that?" Yeah. So, uh, thrashin, I think may have been what turned me on. Thrasher? So the red thr- thrashin, you're right. Yeah, with the Red Hot Chili Peppers in it. Uh, I think that's what turned me onto it and then Mother's Milk must have been the record that was out then. I got that, and it was kind of over. I got in trouble for getting Mother's Milk. (laughs) That vulgar cover. I know. I got in trouble. They're like, what is that? I'm
1: like, don't worry about it. It's
2: fine. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, it's kind of funny. I've gone back and listened to some of that stuff. Like, that. to me, for whatever reason, the hair metal holds up. Like, I'm still a big Motley Crue fan, early Motley Crue. Warrant was mine. Yeah, I like Warrant. They're from around here. Janie Lane was from Akron rest in peace. Yeah. 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 I saw him do karaoke to heaven at a Christmas party really? <laughs> at a bar by my house. Yeah. It was a little, I gotta admit it was a little depressing. Uh, it's a great song still. That's the problem. Yeah. 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 <laughs> So I'm I I'm closer to that than I am to like the my turning bands like Red Hot Chili Peppers. And I went to go see them and smashing pumpkins on the Gish Tour were opening. And Pearl Jam had just put out their first record and it wasn't there wasn't even a video for it and those two bands blew my mind. Um God, eighth grade ninth grade
1: so shows would shows would come through or were, would you drive or would your parents drive you like uh, my how, parents
2: but my parents would drive me and drop me off no my parents shit. were pretty yeah they were pretty they were very supportive i think uh, like my music like i played my first show in seventh grade and my dad got it for us at this like hair metal bar they let us play an afternoon show on a sunday my band was called wild child <laughs> with wise with why of course. Kind of Jamie, yeah. that that's obvious. No one needs to know yeah, that. We I, know. I don't know. I don't yeah, you know, you know. <laughs> I don't know why I had to tell you. We uh, you know, eventually thought that was lame and changed it to, you know, something cooler like dark side. So, uh, we're dark side. Uh so yeah, that's my seventh and eighth grade red hot chili peppers turned me and then I formed a super sick band called Sydney's Incredible Edible Leg. I like that.
1: I have nothing to say
2: yeah i yeah you shouldn't uh we covered <laughs> some red hot chili peppers and at some point in there we discovered fugazi how uh, was it a fanzine was it um so we grew up in kent ohio and it was a big college town what co- wait that's what college again kent state university. oh yeah kent state
1: university, yes, uh, university. i just thought uh, there was another
2: dead one. in ohio is an unfortunate claim to fame
1: no that's so what other what other cities are close by
2: Cleveland, Cleveland's 45 minutes away. Um, and you know, they're basically one of the same. That's where we would go to play shows and stuff like that. Um, and then Columbus is two hours South and Young's. is like four hours. And you know, that's where all the bands that everyone from Ohio, <laughs> everyone loves from Ohio, like got it by voices and brain yeah. neck. So Breeders. Did, you, did
1: you hear about those growing up and knowing that they were from Ohio and knowing those cities and, and, And I mean, I'm sure that they got different types of shows, right? Right, Or maybe they would play twice. Maybe they would play both Columbus and Cleveland. mm
2: -hmm, Yeah. Uh, I was very aware of Brainiac. (laughs) Uh, I like them now. And then I think I was just jealous. Yeah. That's basically the only conclusion I can come to for why I would dislike them because such similarities in what I liked and what they were doing but discovering Fugazi, I'm going to credit Pearl Jam to that. You know, I liked Pearl Jam then they were big Fugazi fans. And I think, that, you know, I discovered that discovered the world of discord. And then Kent, Ohio had a pretty good punk scene, a pretty weird one at that, like sockeye, like kind of just jokey noise bands, um, who really didn't give a shit about anything. And, uh, I was really I found those bands pretty quickly like in like the 10th grade and then there was this other band called Throttle Bottom which is a great band name and they were an amazing band and it's hard to put into words what they were like but people from Throttle Bottom ended up forming Harriet the Spy and I joined and I joined Harriet the Spy in my senior year of high school. Looking back on it, like, it's pretty weird that these college, like, sophomores in college were hanging out with, like, juniors in high school, but they didn't really treat us weird. You know what I mean? So,
1: that happened in college for me. I was in yeah. school and I was had a hardcore show. Kids from high school listened, and then I would go pick them up to go to shows, like they would be like oh pick me up at my house we're going to the show and we would go see hot water and i would pick them up and drop them off now i think i don't know there'd probably be some alert
2: you know on the news for me yeah that kind of stuff i don't think works now
1: like there's kids listening to our radio show they want to they're into the same stuff and we actually a couple kids were in (laughs) bands with them too
2: yeah that's amazing
1: so i get that i that was really that was really cool that it was almost like there wasn't a dividing line you were, you were into cool stuff and you got it and you almost yeah. wanted to get with, you wanted to be with them because there weren't that many people that were into
2: it. Right. Exactly. Yeah. And I mean, eventually became like a spot, like that's where bands would come through and play in our living room and stuff like that. Yeah. We had like some pizza shop basements and things, and you know, we would get <clears throat> some really good shows there. Rorschach played their last show in Kent, Ohio. Wow. Yeah, uh, the my probably the pinnacle, like the real life changing moment. I was in was probably the end of like tenth grade. I saw Born Against in a pizza shop basement. Wow, in Kent, and that was it. That After was that, it. You're I was done. Like, you're- I need I need more music like this and fuck everything else. <laughs> and uh, you know, it had everything I liked. It was a, an intense live show, volume, fast, and really snotty and not like Poppy in any way. And that's what I, you know, it spoke to me and through that, you know, discovered like universal order of Armageddon and man is the bastard. And that's the kind of stuff that I loved. And then in conjunction to that, like I also loved the Smiths. So I went down like, those two paths at the same time, you know,
1: talk about Harriet, the spy. And I, I want to talk about party helicopters too. And I think that time period, you know, the mid nineties, and it was like you kind of mentioned, you know, it's like a little bit angular. It's not poppy, you know, worst term, you know, that term that gets kind of bastardized now is screamo, yeah. um, which I thought was completely different from emo, different from yeah. post-hardcore, different from hardcore. Yeah. And what gravitated you to that sound um, and that, that way? Like, it just... It, I thought it was the most intense thing I'd ever seen. When I yeah. saw bands come through if it was Frail or 400 Years or just any of those I'm like this is this is the the peak of chaos.
2: Yeah, and I think that that is it. Like I liked uh I you know it's I still have these musical tastes and it's harder and harder to find bands <laughs> like that where it's like everything is on the verge of collapse yes. and it sounds amazing it's like you know it's whatever that intensity is and then you could also be really close to it like most of these bands were playing in living rooms so you're kind of right up on it i'm not like a rager at a show but i like to be close to it and i like it to be really loud and i like to kind of feel like i'm gonna get hurt but no i'm not (laughs) you know what i mean yeah that's funny you say the verge of collapse i say that emo
1: to me is euphoric it was never sad it was never uh-huh. something that I thought was like depressing or, yeah. you know, crying or anything like that. It was, mm-hmm. it was euphoria, but also that exact thing of I love it when you think the song is going to break or the band is going to fall apart and they yeah. don't. Yeah. And it, they keep it together. That is screamo. Mm-hmm. That mm-hmm. is emo to me.
2: Yeah, and it's just coming from a different era. I think over the years, like those terms have been tainted, at least in my head. But like
1: Yeah, of course. No, I'm just saying in that time before it got ruined. Oh, before it got ruined, (laughs) that time period, that's what I think it was related to. And it wasn't as um it wasn't as marginalized.
2: Yeah, exactly. And there were two bands, I thought, who were masters of that, and one is Universal Order of Armageddon. The first time I saw that band, they played for like 10 minutes, and it was eight songs, and they were flying all over the place, and it was fucking insane. I was like, that that's amazing. And every time I saw them, it was like that. And then there's a band from Ohio called Three Studies for a Crucifixion. <laughs> who I think kind of got like people thought they were metal cause they use like pointy guitars and a lot of distortion, but they were, they were, uh, there's never been a band like them. They're unbelievable.
1: Did you think that, I mean, again, there's only so far you can go with something that's like that screamy, but I, mm-hmm. I also thought it was, um, I thought it was saying something and it wasn't like the hardcore preach Um, it was more of a subdued and like you said being close being a part of it um, what else about that time or those bands did you feel connected about it
2: I just like the whole DIY mentality really spoke to me like it was like oh I would love to go on tour and it's like oh you can go on tour you can just call these people from this magazine and they'll book you shows and it was more like uh, communal I guess at that time where like everyone was down and like you could be from Kent, Ohio and then go play Little Rock, Arkansas or Gainesville, Florida or, you know, <clears throat> New York, Chicago, any of those places. and You'll find your people right away. They're built in. There's like a whole crew of those people. Um, and I found that really appealing. Um, uh, to me, a lot of the methods of doing it and the interactions were like the fun part. I wasn't really necessarily drawn to the message or the politics ever. Although, you know, I was pretty in line with everybody. <laughs> it's just that's that's not my that was never my fir- fourth, like first priority.
1: Yeah, no more for me was like the DIY like ethos like that was yeah, what exactly. was being said. It was like, you can do this. I'm on the stage. I'm on the floor. You could be here with me playing a show that like, it mm-hmm. wasn't like a I mean, you know, war and those kind of bands that was kind of unattainable. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
2: Yeah, exactly. And like, you know, that's all I wanted to do was play music and that scene made that possible. And I had some pretty specific tastes in music and, you know, it was that scene. Yeah. <laughs> like, and none of that would have, you know, I think nowadays a lot of that stuff would fly to a popular audience. But back then, no way. It, you know, it was just cool. I, I thought seeing what everybody's weird little, you know, scene was like, like what, you know, like how everybody dressed a certain way in like one part of the country and like had the same concerns in their fanzines and that, you know, and then you go to another part and it'd be completely different. I feel like we from Kent, Ohio really found our people in, uh, in Gainesville, Florida, in little rock, Arkansas, and like Portland, Oregon and Sacramento. A lot of those bands were like, we were the, you know, similar kinds of people. So we loved playing in those places and still have friends from back then from those places. You
1: know, what's crazy as you're saying that is you're exactly right. Cause I grew up in a really small town in Vermont and not a lot of stuff came through other than hardcore yeah. bands or they were on their way to Montreal. And I never saw a big band growing up in, in high school. Um, yeah. and it was funny that bands would mention, or I would realize like, Or like the guy in the band would wear like a shirt for like a band. And then the next (laughs) time, the next show, all the kids in the crowd had it. Or they were talking about the record. It was sort of the same thing where a band might notice that no one knows this one band. Or what is everyone wearing this one shirt? I don't know who this is. And it could have been a local band. But it was like more of a you could tell the differences because things were isolated a little bit.
2: Yeah, totally. And, and you know, pretty internet and all that. Yeah, yeah. I,
1: I, I loved that. We were all wearing, you know, like shirts for like the champions or this band called Slush. And mm-hmm. bands would come and be like, I don't know who the fuck that is, or they would go and check them out. Or but you, it wasn't like said; it was more of right. like observed.
2: Yeah, exactly. And like I, that kind of stuff to me was always it was cool. And I mean, you know, I hate to be an old person, be like the internet ruined it. But like. It is true to some extent. I, you, you don't get the surprise of showing up somewhere and being like, you know, like I remember going to Placa and having my, or Placa, Gainesville, and having my mind blown by Palatka for the first time. But, you know, everybody else seemed to know who they were. I was like, oh my God, this band is amazing. How am I not heard of them? I toured pretty consistently from 95 until, in my own bands, until about 2009. Wow. And, like, I could see that happening, like, the excitement did you see? kind of thing. Well, I just feel like the excitement wasn't there, and the unknown factor started to dwindle in the early 2000s. And then by, like, the mid to late 2000s, people were just bored as shit. Watching? You know, they could get a sense of what you were going to bring to them beforehand. And, like, they were also getting a sense of a million other bands that are kind of doing the same thing. And they're like, yeah, I'm tired tonight, I'm not going to go. Yeah. You know what I mean, like you know, I've never been in a band that had <laughs> you know diehard fans. I would say they were like gonna come to the show no matter what you did. So yeah. I don't know what it's like for other people but for like me and like what I do like you could kind of see that happen,
1: but I think that's an interesting example because most I'm not saying your bands weren't big i I consider these bands integral in what I started listening to with a lot of the stuff from that era. But I think it's an interesting, it's not like I'm asking Chuck Reagan from hot water or someone <laughs> right. else because yeah, yeah. he, they had a, a le- it's almost like you were in the band that was a part of it, but it didn't grow and you could watch it from different eyes. You could exactly. watch it.
2: Yeah. And like, I mean, I just do the things that I do because I like doing them. Yeah. There wasn't like a point. I mean, even with what I do now, like the point wasn't to get rich. It was because I like doing it and I can. And it seemed like other people like it too, no matter like how big or small that audience is. And like, you know, me... And all of my friends who were in bands, we were in a choir taste. There was a lot of sarcasm that didn't translate because you didn't know us. (laughs) And, uh, you know, a lot of eclectic tastes and music all thrown together. There was never like a defined. I just don't feel like Harriet the Spy or Party of Helicopters really ever played with a band where it's like, oh, you're just like us. You know what I mean? I always felt like oddball on the show, which was fine. I like it.
1: Yeah, I actually liked when it was all different stuff. Yeah, it me too. Like the punk band, the emo band, the acoustic mm-hmm. kid, the screamo, then like the straight yeah. at punk. Like, fine. Yeah. Um, I'm
2: seeing more of that stuff now. Um, I agree. And to, and to go back a little bit, like, you know, not being cool <laughs> and like there's that must still must be going on. I've had that thought off and on like over the last like 20 years. Like, man, I wonder like if, if kids are still going to house shows or like doing zines and – Cause I just dropped out at some point, you know? Yeah. Still playing music, still listen to all that stuff, but I just stopped being so absorbed by it. And like, it was nice to find out, uh, um, my stepson is 21 and he started playing in kind of a screamy emo band like five years ago. And I went to a show and I was like, it's still going. It is. It totally reminded me of all the bands that I played with in the nineties. I was like, this is cool. And like, I have to admit, I am, I play bass in a pretty straight-up kind of sloppy punk band called Fringe Candidate, mm-hmm. and we've played a couple house shows around here, and they're all, like, friends of my stepson. <laughs> it was like, oh, man. I don't know how I feel, how they feel, how he would feel about it, but it's like, <laughs> but it was a lot, I mean, it's a lot of fun and like, no one treats us like we're old dinosaurs or whatever. Yeah. They're, right? they're into it and stuff. It's fun to go back and do that now. Like, I never thought I would play a house show again. I gotta be honest. Like, it just seems like such a chore at my age. I would not do a tour of that, but it was fun to do. And I would, t- I would totally do more.
1: That's so that the whole point of this, and I know this is not is like, oh, it was awesome back then and now it's not. You oh. know, I remember finding out about top shelf records or finding out about Count Your Lucky Stars and like mm-hmm. reaching out to and being like, Oh my God, you would have fit in right with us in the nineties. Yeah. And now there's kids that are emulating top shelf and doing another label. And I think mm-hmm. this DIY thing that obviously Fugazi and Ian and and those things sort of permeated and sort of got to a larger audience and what the ethos is, I think yep. that lives somehow in a certain five or six kids in a high school. And, yeah, no, it
2: definitely does.
1: And I think that that still continues. And I think that's great that your stepson um, mm-hmm. is doing that. And mm-hmm. I think there is something to the, the idea of, there's a niche and there are people that are going to get, they're going to be people that dig it. And Mm -hmm. there's kids that are just going to want to be in the cover band because they know everyone's going to come out to the cover band. I was, I would rather be in the niche band with my six friends that are into it (laughs) because it felt
2: right. Me too. I mean, I'm a lifer for better or worse with all of that kind of stuff. I just, you know, I, it's what I like to do. (laughs) And my wife always says it, uh, that, you know, I couldn't be employed by somebody else. I'm not built to be an employee (laughs) of anybody. So, you know, lucky for me, something works, (laughs) but like, uh, it is true. Like I just, I, I can only exist doing the things that I like to do, whether or not other people like them. Um, which I think I proved with how long I stayed and some, (laughs) like some of those bands stayed together. Uh, so you stopped in 2009. Uh yeah well I stopped a little bit before that like Party of Helic Harry the Spy broke up in like the early ninety eight right yeah something like that so like, ninety eight two thousand somewhere yeah. in there and we kind of morphed into another band called New Terror Class that lasted for like one tour and uh Party of Helicopters was going through that whole thing I started that that band in high school yeah 95. I thought that
1: that was around the same time or yeah. Early, yeah.
2: 95 and then we lasted till 2004 wow and we still play every once in a while um and you know that was a long time to be in a punk band that like i mean even on our last tour we still played in some houses and we never made any money ever ever like barely scraped by it the (laughs) whole time uh you know we tried everything (laughs) at some point uh we missed the wave of major labels scooping up all the bands. We got calls; they would come see us and be like, "Yeah, to no. know." What years was that? <laughs> uh, late '90s, early 2000s. Um, and you know, we decided at some point, like, this we have to do something. We either have to really try or just straight quit. Yeah. So we decided to really try, and you know, got a bought a nice van, got a booking agent and a publicist, and like had some pretty good tours signed to a label called Bellicet that used to be Capricorn Records. Right. It had like a bunch of like old kind of stonery rock before that term existed bands that I liked like Captain Beyond and White Witch also 311 but uh <laughs> you know that was it. It didn't really work out the way that we wanted to and I you know we were uh, my wife and I were about to have our first kid together and I was like, yeah. I'm done <laughs> yeah. much to ev- much to everybody's surprise. Cause that band was kind of my baby, uh, party and that was, that, that was,
1: that was party helicopter. So you yeah. said, we got a kid on the way. I'm done with this. What did you, mm-hmm. what did you
2: think then? Uh, I started tour managing the black keys. <laughs> <laughs> nice. So I kind of took a break, but was still on tour. I was, but I was making money. And working for a band that people liked, Um, and you know, Pat, the drummer, was a was a good friend of mine from back then. He used to come to all the shows and everything. So that you know, I kind of fell into that job. They weren't looking for a tour manager. I told them they needed one, and I did it. But that's that's the thing. Yeah,
1: I think that's the part that I think people sometimes. I was just talking to a bunch of interns today, and Mm -hmm. there were you could see certain ones were like, I asked this other department, or I emailed them, and there you could see the you know, the, the, the curiousness or the yep. needing to ask. And there were other people that were just bored and they were looking at the computer. You saw the opportunity, told them, yep. they realized it. They trusted you because you'd uh-huh. been friends in the scene. I tell that people too. Yeah. I'm like, get in a scene, be, yeah. be noticed, be involved <laughs> because yeah. if you didn't go to any shows that wouldn't have happened.
2: Right. Exactly. And you know, well. will, one thing I'm kind of skipping over a whole thing. I started a record label when I was like 13 years old and I ran that until I was 25. Too. Oh, no
1: way. What was that called? Yeah,
2: I had a record label called Donut Friends Records. And I, by the end, I had put out almost 100 releases. Holy shit. Half of them were cassettes, but, you know, still did it. Uh, and... uh yeah, mean, that, that's amazing. That, I didn't know thanks. how I I completely
1: <laughs> yeah, looked over that.
2: I, I put out a compilation record with money I saved from two Christmases <laughs> and wow. then just started filtering that money into putting out more records. Um, I put out a bunch of like my own bands, but all the local bands. And then I started branching out uh, like, I don't know, I have bands from all over. Uh, and I did that for a long time. And, you know, I made a lot of connections through that thing. I was kind of always the responsible person in bands. <laughs> like, would be booking the shows and dealing with records and things yeah, like yeah. that. And that's kind of how I survived personally on tour, is I would bring my own little record label. then Distro and put it up on the table and sell it. Um, and, you know, to go back to the black keys like when i was doing that like the further i got into that i would meet more and more people like in that scene and like you know you'd be at big record label offices and management and publicists and all this stuff that i knew from you know playing house shows exactly just run into them and be like holy shit you're a promoter here now at this huge theater that's cool
1: but there was a thing that it was just like a level of understanding like there's yeah. a bands would walk by my office that I have right now. And they'd look in and they see a coheed thing or they see, yeah. you know, a giant EVR thing from, you know, years ago. And they're like, yeah.
2: Oh, we're good. <laughs> yeah. 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 yeah, And that's how I feel. Like you can find your people.
1: <laughs> yeah. Which is, you're totally right. It's like, and I, I don't, again, I don't say it's better, but I love to know that when I'm talking to someone and I know that they came up in that, Mm -hmm. It's just a different understanding.
2: Yeah, no, it definitely is. Like you can kind of, I can relate to those people much quicker. (laughs) Or trust. Yeah, or trust. And like even now today with the, the pedals, I still run into people constantly all the time and like people who have been using them forever and been like i had no idea you're the guy from party of helicopters <laughs> and then it's like some really famous person who i'm like i had no idea you knew who the hell a party of helicopters were so like it's you know it's it's cool i mean like it, the connections that i made back then I yeah mean it still exists to this day
1: so then starting up the the pedals was that I think I had read a few places and I'd love for you to kind of go th- you know, through it. I've done it a few times, but I think you were just kind of like, I didn't hear the sound I wanted to hear.
2: That's essentially it. I mean, it really started from like, I had this old pedal that I liked a lot and it broke and uh, I bought a replacement. It didn't sound the same. So I was like, well, I'm going to, f- you know, I got to fix this pedal. No one fixes pedals. Like you can't take one to a music store. They're like, throw it away, buy a new one. Yep. So I looked up a schematic for it Understood it, repaired it, got excited. And then from How did that, you
1: understand it?
2: Uh I kinda I don't know. Are I you a was, math
1: whiz? Or are you science whiz? Not a,
2: definitely not a math whiz. I was a graphic designer and I feel like the flow of it just made sense. I didn't fully understand what everything was doing, but this like the you know, the start to finish I could get it and I could find my part that I needed to replace in this thing. And I did it and it worked. I got excited. So then that same website, General Guitar Gadgets had like all these like projects up so i built a clone of that particular pedal and it kind of took off from there so i spent uh you know at that time i was working as a tour manager i had a freelance graphic design job when i was at home that play, paid extremely well so all my free time was just spent learning about electronics like what does it take so i was just building stuff for me and my friends and then i put some stuff on ebay and i sold some, you know Got a little bit of interest, and then forums is really where it took off. There's this forum, Harmony Central. Oh, I love Harmony Central. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And this is like 2004 ish, five ish. In like, uh, I'd built some pedals because I was working for the Black Keys. I'd built some pedals for them, and someone was like, What is that? And I was like, Oh, I made that. You know, they posted just a random picture on there, and I was like, Oh, I made that pedal, and that generated some interest. So I started selling from there, and then next thing I knew, Like two years later, I had a pedal company that I did not intend to start with zero. You know, I had no business plan for it. There was no like seed money or anything. It's just kind of just how I do everything else. (laughs) I fell into it (laughs) with dumb luck. And that just happened to be the one where it was like right place, right time um and you know it grew and grew and grew word of mouth never advertised never did anything to try to do it i was getting dealers every day by like 2010 that's pretty much 2008 is actually when i kind of started i bailed on the graphic design job and i think 2010 was my last year of tour managing and it's also the first year that i hired an employee wow that it was like one every six months and then Julie and my wife came on in 2012 and she's got the real business mind. She's the one, you know, she doesn't play music. She's not really like connected so much to the pedals where it's like personal to me. So she was able to like come in. That's a great yin yang. Yeah. And, you know, she worked at a bank. She was a financial planner for 10 years or she worked at the bank for 10 years and she was a financial planner. Yeah. At the end. So, you know, she was able to quit her job because the pedal company was doing well and she just took it over and she's been you know running the business side of it ever since and she's got a real brain for that and like really good at like managing a large group of people and smaller groups and has really good concepts for promoting and things like that and she's really thinks outside the box and uh you know she had a booking agency back like when i was doing the label and touring and stuff and she booked a ton of bands um from back then so she, you know she is kind of part of the scene too and we kind of parlayed all of that DIY knowledge into running this pedal company still to this day.
1: That's what I wanted to. So one thing, and I think it's funny. I wrote like, just, it seems like there's these punk ideals within the company. Um, But what was the day that you said, okay, I'm doing this because I get scared about that sometimes with, you know, I want to do this and you kind of take that leap. What was the day that you said, all right, we're doing this.
2: It was already fairly – like it was successful enough that I could have lived on it personally as a job like 2008. And that was when I was like something has to go and I lit <laughs> – it was scary because it paid extremely well. Graphic, this freelance graphic design job, I could just sit in my pajamas at home all day <laughs> and design boring PowerPoints for a lot of money. And like that, but it was the most frustrating one because I was kind of like at their mercy. Like, you know, they could be like, we have a presentation at 8 a.m. tomorrow. It's 11 p.m. now. I need it by 3 a.m. Wow. Now I'm done. I'm done. I don't have to do this anymore. Money is great. But you know what? I'd rather do this. So that was the first thing to go. And then I really like just wanted a tie to the music world. So like that's why I couldn't give up the tour managing. But, you know. I really should not have been doing it at that point. We had like two kids who so were like two and three and like, you know, I was busy with the pedals. I should have just been focusing on that. So that was kind of like that like wake up call. And yeah. then like once I quit doing everything else and just focus on pedals, it really exploded. So had I quit sooner, I think it, it would have happened maybe a little bit faster. But like I said, like, I mean, it was all really word of mouth and a very natural progression. There was no forced, Growth or no intention of being, you know, making money and all this stuff. It was just, this is really cool. And it was kind of like, you know, how I hope like records or bands would take off. Yeah. So, like, real, so many real similarities. Nat- naturally. And, you know, that's how we ran it for a long time. There was, to me, there was no difference between making records and shipping them then making pedals and shipping them, other than I was designing the pedals from the ground up and we were building them by hand. Um, and, you know, not too much of that process has changed even now you know we have like about 50 employees now and not much of it has changed (laughs) we're more pro and it is you know a larger business and things like that but just like the development process is pretty much the same and the assembly process is pretty much the same Mm
1: -hmm. one thing that you mentioned in one of your interviews is that you can hear parts of songs (laughs) And I kind of relate that to, and this is this is a this is a compliment. It, it, you know, a dog can smell ingredients of a pasta sauce, and we just smell the sauce. Right. And I think that's a really cool trait. Or, you know, a skill to have to kind of hear the pieces of it as a guitar mm -hmm. player myself, like sometimes I'm wondering, you know, while I'm listening to, like you mentioned Gish, like being able to listen to Billy and be like, all right, what's how much compression or what's that chorus or, and I think for you to do that is an amazing skill.
2: Yeah, I've always kind of done that. I don't know if it's good or or bad. Like sometimes it's frustrating. You don't hear the song for the song. You focus on the thing that draws you in. Yeah, And I mean, the first time I can remember doing that, honestly, was listening to Fugazi's Repeater. Mm -hmm. The hi-hat on that record sounds amazing. And, like, I've really honed in on that hi-hat, and I still, to this day, can't listen to that record without being like, man, that hi-hat sounds like it's in the room. Like, somehow, (laughs) like, I really like how that hi-hat sounds. And, like, that would cause me to do things to be like, where do they record this? Who was the engineer? Can we go record there? No, it's too expensive. Well, who can? Who else can we find that's similar to that? So then you kind of listen for, like, other producer styles and mm-hmm. things like that. And then ultimately learn how to do it yourself and then just do it. Yeah. <laughs> so that's how I would approach things like that. And I mean, still to this day, like, you know, like, uh, you know, we'll listen to a song on the radio and I'll be like, oh, man, that compression is weird. And Julie's like, what are you hearing? You know, <laughs> like, It's just a song. I'm like, no, it's driving me crazy. Yeah. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah. Maybe a curse. I don't know. But
1: I'm horrible <laughs> watching movies because I'm a I'm a continuity Nazi. Uh And, like, if I notice something out of sync or the mouth is moving and they're not talking or Uh the cup of milk keeps changing, you know, how much is in it, I'm always the first person
2: and people are getting really annoyed. I got a little bit of that, too. OCD. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, God. I can't not say it. Yeah, me neither. And like I'm like, you know, forty-two now. I've got yeah. forty-two years of being that asshole. Being like, Oh man, you know, this would have been great, but she's wearing her shirts wrinkled in a different place. Yeah. Scene. You
1: know what? There's <laughs> no way she could have got downtown that fast. Yeah. I don't know what I don't know what fucking day it was, but it yeah. was you can't get downtown that fast.
2: Yeah, that's not logical. And then someone's like, It's a
1: movie. I know. <laughs> that's what my girlfriend says every time she's like, It's a movie. I go, I know, but why wasn't someone there saying that? Do they want me to buy it or what? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> if I get out of the movie, it that's, no. that's on you movie maker.
2: Uh huh. Yeah. I have that problem. Like <laughs> I got a lot with designy things like, how so know, like with font, what? Like let like that font or like, I don't know. It's hard. It, like, this is how I would know I was done when I would like do like a layout for something. And it's exactly the same way. I know when I'm done with like designing a pedal, like, I'm done with, like, a layout when I stare at it and I'm not uncomfortable. Interesting. I can't really, like, put my finger on it, but, like, I get all fidgety. Like, if, like, you know, the letting is off a little bit or, like, things aren't justified the right way or, like, the ratios to the text and images are off and, like, the light and dark space isn't balanced, I will get, like, all fidgety and itchy. And, like, I'll know when I'm done because I feel comfortable when I stare at it. Mm -hmm. And with pedals, like, I know when I'm done. When I can just play guitar through it for a couple of hours and I'm not thinking about like, you know, the EQ of it or like how it sits on every string or like what full chords sound like through it or anything like that where I'm just making music on it.
1: You're I'm watching like, oh. the movie, man.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I'm comfortable. And You're comfortable. Fine. And then I know I'm done.
1: <laughs> I like that. There is a similarity then, just like you're you're the mm-hmm. director has uh, kept you in the movie. You and oh, yeah. I haven't found a thing to make fun of or to uh-huh. find yeah. wrong, and then oh. you're okay.
2: Yeah, we look at each other and give each other the thumbs up, and we're like, it's fine.
1: It's <laughs> <finally> fine. Um, <laughs> as a guitar player myself, I think initially pedals are mm. uh, intimidating. You know, you yeah. go to a show and you see the guys got six of them, or maybe it's just one yeah. and it's a wah wah pedal and a distortion, or maybe there's a fader or compression, and how do all those work? And yeah. I think there's a lot to, I think there's a lot of education that I wish I could have had growing yeah. up to learn. And I think. Your YouTube channel is an interesting place and I, I don't know what I, I think I would my mind would have fucking blown if I knew there was like YouTube <laughs> channels to like find out about pedals but right the teaching and education about pedals seems to be just as hard as not hard but just as important as the pedal itself
2: yeah no I think it is I mean, there's some stuff that I think is pretty straightforward, like you can, you know, overdrive pedal, you know what tone gain and volume is going to do. But, you know, I've made some stuff that's weird and has knobs like warp or magic.
1: The and rainbow pedal.
2: Yeah, yeah. Rainbow machine has magic Rainbow on machine, it. yeah. Yeah, and transmissor has warp and it's like they're not common. And, you know, I just decided to make those words up for what they do because I couldn't think of anything better. Because to me, that's what it sounds like mm-hmm. magic. And it's like, yeah, that requires some tutorial. Like, you're not going to be able to hammer away some bar chords through this and have it sound good. If that's what you want to do, it's not really your thing. But yeah. if you're willing to devote the time, like, you'll be able to find something unique. And I mean, that's the goal with about half of the Earthquaker pedals is that, uh, you know, it's made to come up with some new sounds, maybe make you play a little different or write something a little different and then half of the other pedals are pretty you know your bread and butter boosters distortions overdrive fuzz pedals and I think a lot of that stuff you know it's an acquired taste not everybody understands why like you can put 25 distortion pedals together and some people can hear the difference and others can't uh for me personally it's more of a feeling like I just know like My, the way I play interacts well with a certain pedal and not with the other, even though to somebody else it could sound exactly the same. But I'm also listening to like the way it decays and the harmonics and how it reacts to several notes or just one note. and um, Anal, I guess that's the word for it. Yeah. Whereas I guess some people can, you know, they just want to hammer away bar chords and anything will do and that's fine. But yeah, like the pedal world is out of control. There's so many pedals. There's so much information and there's so many cool, unique things. It's, But there's so many musicians out there that like there's something for everybody and there's an everybody <laughs> for like every pedal. You know what I mean? So
1: how have you how, I mean, I just go back to the YouTube thing. Like I think yeah. the interviews behind the scenes, you know, the content stuff. That Mm -hmm. seems to have set you guys apart and having those different approaches to explaining, you know, talking to Kurt, you know, Kurt Blue and going through his studio and talking to him or I think those are those put into into context for me Uh and hearing someone I love talk about it versus the guy from Guitar Center just telling me about it.
2: Exactly. And, uh, you know, so. So we do two series ones called board to death where people show their pedal boards and the other is called show us your junk where people show us their gear. And that one is mainly focused on like engineers and studios. Um, but we, you know, we do some musician stuff and it's really like, uh, it's kind of like archival a little bit. Like here are these really interesting people that you might not be thinking about all the time. And here's how they do their thing. That's really unique. And I gotta say, um, Both of those things have really... And they're not Earthquaker-centric. They, you know, some of those people don't even use our pedals. Uh, It's just nice to show people... You know, the pedal world is, is really... The primary focus is rock music and like, you know, run of the mill rock music. I think like a lot of radio stuff and they don't, a lot of people don't know about this other world. They don't know about like the world that we all came from and they don't think like even if they would hear some of that music, like they wouldn't think that how much thought and work goes into doing it. And I think it opens a lot of people's eyes to, to that. And it makes them more accepting of music in general. Because that's kind of the point, really. Like, these people are all lifers, and they're, like, chasing some kind of sound. And it's nice to show them how those people do it. And how that equates to us is that's how we are. So, you know, I, I, I think that those videos all come out really cool. I mean, everybody who's worked on them has done an incredible job at capturing all of that.
1: I really like the way you said that. And I think archival is a thing that's come up recently with a lot of people and understanding, you know, that what they're doing now is important. And someone learning about finding out about converge today. Right. Can watch that video. And I'm a nerd since back, you know, way back, but I learned something just as much as the kid finding out about it today. And, there's a you're and I think you're totally right because the punk and emo and hardcore, it's marginalized. It's yeah. it's pitchfork has always shit on it up until about five years ago when they decided to do yeah. they just started to re-rank all the records and say they're awesome again. Um, yeah. and give them you know best reissue. But before that, they were shit on. You know, yeah, they exactly. were they were marginalized and shit on and not just pitchfork but countless reviews. I, you know, it was never respected. And I think you finding out how Kurt put shit together, you just think that's a wall of noise. Well, guess yeah. what? It's not. And yeah. here's all the things that went through it and I feel like those what you what you're doing and I think more mm-hmm. like that leads people to think about it from a, a different perspective which hopefully helps them understand that maybe this different pedal would help me do that versus getting, you know, yeah. the same old
2: yeah, and like I mean, even outside of that, it's just to show like here are these other like no one hired these people <laughs> to right to do this thing. Like they, they had found to do the it. thing that they like to do and they did it. And like it caught on and it you know, they're helping other people do the thing they like to do. And that's, you know, our thing also. Yeah. So it's it's nice to show All of that stuff. One thing I was going to say, like we just did like, you know, he's well known. He's super famous, but he's got a weird reputation. Steve Albini. That was a great interview. Everything that we shot that day. I I haven't been on every one of those video shoots. I've been on a lot of them. I'm always in the background. I'm not like a direct part of all all that stuff. But that was one. I was like, I'm going to that. I have to go to it. So I'm in the background the whole time, like following them around while they're filming them and interviewing them and stuff. Everything that happened that day was amazing. So we have like eight hours of footage of him. And it's so hard for Chris, our videographer, to edit that stuff down because everything is good. So it's like he was so informative and so friendly and funny. And, you know, that's just not the – like people from our era I don't think have the same, you know – They know him from like Steve from, you know, Big Black or Shellac or any of that stuff, like his kind of. Or the
1: stuff with Nirvana.
2: Yeah, or the stuff with Nirvana. Like, you know, he's impossible. Like, he had a reputation, I think, for being impossible, but he's not. He's particular. Like, he likes his thing and he's really good at it, and no one knows it better than him. And uh, I really think that that video was amazing. And so many people have written us or told me directly, like, how much they love that video and it's it's such a good thing. I don't know. That's one of my favorites.
1: I watched the whole thing and I learned so much. And again, I think your secret sauce is okay, I just watched an Earthquaker video. It was Steve Albini. I learned something. Again, it's not always on the nose. It's not like him pointing out to, you know, I think Kurt joked about having some Earthquaker stuff in his in his shelf or whatever. But like I th- I think even if he didn't, it was still that, okay they're hitting up somebody that I respect or want to know more about. And it's, again, it's that sort of, uh, unsaid thing.
2: Yeah. And sometimes that stuff is our connection to those people, but we never ask them to show it. You know what I mean? Like none of that is like, okay, we're going to come do this video and you need to plant Earthquaker in here. (laughs) So like if Steve never mentioned that they had our pedals at electrical audio, none of us would have really cared, but it's awesome that he did. Yeah. And it's the same thing with Kurt and anybody else that we've done stuff with. I mean, they don't have to, but they choose to.
1: And I think those things aren't being asked those right. questions. That interview, it, 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 it. I mean, I just bugged, um, Adam from jawbreaker and did an Mm -hmm. interview with him and I just talked about archiving. I didn't talk about jawbreaker. (laughs) They've already talked (laughs) about jawbreaker with everybody. And I think for you guys having that, you know, it's one thing to talk about pedals. It's another to have those deeper conversations. And I think there's a trust that they have with you moving forward, which I'm sure you guys have seen
2: yeah definitely definitely and i mean we consider all those people our friends i can't speak for everybody but like just coming from like the kind of scene that i came from like it's a little insular and like you you learn to like distrust anything big and popular yep and uh you just get like a little warped tunnel vision on stuff and like don't think of some of that uh you know more popular things as real And it's nice to kind of get into all of that and be like, hey, everybody kind of makes music exactly the same way. So, like, it was kind of helpful for me even personally to see all these different kinds of bands that we've done videos with be like, everyone is the same person. Like, none of these people would be making music if they weren't driven to do it. You know what I mean? Yeah. And it's nice to see each person's way of doing it.
1: The common one of uh, my podcast is everybody's Fugazi.
2: Everybody mentions Fugazi or Thrasher. (laughs) Yeah, of course. (laughs) Like, how could you do it without (laughs) mentioning Fugazi? I just, uh, my band Relaxer just played with Mesthetics. How was that? Amazing. And I got to tell you, I'm, (laughs) I'm embarrassed to even say it, but like, I... Uh we we'd done a video with Anthony before. He's a great guy. Uh, you know, their band is amazing. But you know, I love Fugazi. And I went up to Brendan and went to introduce myself to him. He's like, I know who you are. It's so great to meet you. And like I didn't show it, but inside my head was fucking exploding. Yeah, it was. And I didn't Jamie think I would have that fucking I didn't, killing it. <laughs> I didn't think I would have that reaction at my age. But it was like, you know, the 14-year-old me was like, the guy from Fugazi knows who I am. Oh, my God. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> so, you know, that it was like was the thing. Uh, <laughs> at the end, I was like, you know, it was really nice to meet you. He was like, hey, just send me an email. It's brendan at discord.com. And like, I don't know how that sounds to anybody. But like just hearing that, it's like, of course, it's brendan at discord. It's <laughs> wish i'd known that
1: earlier <laughs> it was like oh yeah you know <laughs> now the question is did you fit in the bedroom when you went to bed was your wife having trouble Did you was your head big and small enough to get in
2: her i think before i came home and she's like yeah of course <laughs> <laughs> uh, my girlfriend yeah. likes to say you're the king
1: of a castle i've never heard of Exactly. <laughs> That's a good way of putting it. She's like, I don't know uh, what you just fucking said to me. It doesn't matter. I st- The dinner's not ready. I was like,
2: you're, gotta, right. you're right. I'm sorry. Uh, I'm sorry. I got to say, I had I had a weird experience <laughs> with Brendan what earlier happened? on when I was working with the Black Keys. We played Austin City Limits, and uh, Bob, Brendan was playing with Bob Mould, and they, w- <laughs> were, uh, they were in the dressing room. That we were supposed to be in. Oh. So they had just gotten off stage. And like I walked in. And I was like oh god. It's Brendan and that's Bob Mould. Shit. And then I came out and was like yeah they're not done yet. And you know it was the desert or whatever wherever we were. No it was Coachella. It was Coachella. Um, and they're like well we need the room. So I had to go in and kick that's awesome. Brent and Canty and Bob Mould out of their dressing room. And like, like, oh, God damn it. This feels so weird. Like I wasn't mean about it or anything. I was like, hey, uh, it's our turn. <laughs> they were very nice, but I didn't bring it up. when I
1: Hey, by the way, Brett, I know that you know me, but I kicked you out of, uh, you know.
2: Remember when that happened? Oh, God. Uh, I don't know. There are very few people like that, though, that like hold – like a thing where like, even still I can get nervous. Um, Thurston Moore was another one Mm -hmm. when he came by the shop, like he just walked in the door and I was like, Oh my God. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. (laughs) I love that. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And Debbie, Debbie from, Debbie from my bloody Valentine. It was a Thurston Moore band. So it was Debbie and Steve Shelley. And I was like, God, people from Sonic Youth and my bloody Valentine are in my office. and I'm showing them the pedals. (laughs) cool don't work it's cool it's, <laughs> it's cool keep, keep it cool man <laughs> everything's great <laughs> yeah, i've got a, a goofy ian story yeah well, yeah well i met him on a party of helicopters tour i went to a flea market at the black cat and at the time a friend of mine was working at discord and uh i was kind of drunk i was pretty drunk actually I was, and like staring at some stuff and she came up and she's like hey i want i want to introduce you to my boss and I turned around, and it was Ian. And, like, I, you know, whatever. I know that this is stupid, but, like, I, like, felt like I got caught drinking by my parents or something. And I was, like, <laughs> you know, in my late 20s, like, this is not how I want to meet Ian <laughs> And then he was, like, hey, Jamie, it's nice to meet you. I'm, I'm Ian. And I was, like, I'm Ian. I introduced myself back to him as Fuck. Ian. I got, like, so flustered by Shamey. it. Yeah, (laughs) so stupid. Looking back on it, it was so dumb. But then, like, he was aware of my bands and my label, too. Like, he talked to me about it. So, he's got, like, he must be, like, uh, I don't know, (laughs) a crazy memory. That or, like, he's, like, got an internal Wikipedia that he's always cycling. Yeah. I know this person. Superhuman. I'm actually about to – we're going to try to visit – uh, Julie and I, Earthquaker, won exp- national exporter of the year for Earthquaker devices. Oh,
1: I just so saw that. I think you guys posted about it, right?
2: Yeah, um, like our local small business association nominated us for like nominated us for the Ohio one, and we ended up winning Ohio regional and national. I don't know what that means. That's amazing. But we're going to DC this weekend for the <laughs> award ceremony, and we're going to try to tour the discord discord house
1: nice does you do your friends that still work there uh well brendan
2: yeah yep. brendan at discord.com just brendan at discord.com <laughs> i gotta I got to talk to him i you know i've, I've no i've talked with like brian in, in the past um but you know it's been so long i don't know i don't know if it's gonna be possible but that's one of our goals is to try to check out discord
1: what are your thoughts on the pedals with a thousand different things at once? And you can, Mm -hmm. you know, there's a bunch of different things um, and a kid can get that or he would need to experiment and maybe borrow and try stuff out at the store and then put together that same thing or their own sound with one, you know, singular pedals. How have you, how have you thought about that? And, it's something that I, I think about cause I'm like, well, wait a minute, I could spend this for this and fuck around. And then if I, you know, know that I like this kind of sound and this, and then I could get the pedals and maybe it's more analog. I, I,
2: I yeah. go back and forth. Yeah. I mean, I think that's a, 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 personal preference i think for people you know certainly guitar effects were like all you could get back in the day and then you know somewhere in the 80s rack effects came out and you could buy one box for 300 that does everything on earth um but you got to do a lot of menu diving and a lot of setup and all this stuff and you know the sound quality back then wasn't quite what Analog was. Now, digital and analog can be interchangeable. In fact, a lot of people think everything we make is analog, but it's half and half. Really? Yeah, you know, it's 50% digital, 50% analog. Um, that's all. Now you can program things to sound analog um, and make them do interesting things. But for me, and like, you know, Earth, like the stuff I had to make, it's not market driven. Um, is I'm really still just making the things that I like. You know, I get pointers here and there, see something that I think is cool and kind of incorporate it in. But uh, to me, I like to know what everything does and have it right in your face. Like every, every function of the pedal is accessible from a knob right there. And there's no like real hidden features. And if we do hide a feature, it's something really simple. Like it could be true bypass or it could have trails on a delay or something like that or... You know, but we're not, you know, I'm not a fan of menu diving or, like, having, like, a Rolodex of instruction manuals in my head. Like, I'm not into that. I think other people could be. Um, I definitely see the merit in, like, people are, like, I really only use, like, Pitch Shifter and Reverb and Delay, like, once in a whole set. So, this multi-effect that does all that is $100, And it's fine enough for me. Yeah. Like I see why people do that kind of stuff. It's all a matter of taste. Um, We've done quite well by just making pedals that do one thing and do them well.
1: (laughs) That's – no, that's what I think. I think the menu diving thing is crazy. And also I think if someone does that first – or if that's something easy, it's almost like then they figure out like, okay, I do love delay and I want this phaser and now I'm going to get a really great delay and I'm going to really yeah. get phaser and I've already got a distortion on my analog or my uh, tube amp. I'm set,
2: right? right? Yeah. And I think that there's two kinds of people really. Like there's people who buy into it, like get into the gear. Like they like the gear. I am one of those people and I've always been one of those people. Like I like cool old things and like anything that kind of attracts me like you know you just want to touch it you want to turn the knobs you want to press the switches see what it does manipulate it and you know becomes part it's like an instrument it becomes another instrument and then there are people who the instrument is just the tool for like the message or the feeling or even just the job and those are the people who tend to use like the multi effects and things like that they don't get so hung up on like you know the gear i guess And, uh, you know, there's obviously people in between, you know, I go, I do, I guess I would say I go through some phases too. I'm like probably a little in between right now. I'm not so hung up on like having a ton of pedals in everything, even though I make them. Uh, my pedal board shrinks and grows as you know, whatever band I'm in and what songs we're playing, things like that. But you know, I'm like a gear nerd. (laughs) It's hard to, hard to get rid of. I don't think I've actually mentioned I said Earthquaker a couple times but the pedal company is called Earthquaker Devices um, you can find that online at EarthquakerDevices.com uh, still playing music I'm in a band called Relaxer yeah, Jamie. well thanks, thanks for doing this yeah thanks for having me